Good morning. Good to be with you guys this morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name's Paul. I'm a deacon here at the church, and it's Mission Sunday, and so I get to talk because that's my background. Um, We bump into a text today, Romans 10, where the Apostle Paul says, quotes from Isaiah, and says, basically says in my words, missionary feet are beautiful feet. And there's a question that's arise. The first question that arises for me is, are feet beautiful? Is that possible? Um, They're stinky. In my family, I have a cousin who's just like very beautiful, but she's very self-conscious about her feet. She has what she calls a water tower toe that like sticks out. She thinks that the whole world looks at that when they see her. Um, And there's a bit of kind of a water tower toe of the missionary foot, you know. Um, uh, A number of things could be brought up about missions that sort of clash with the modern moment, with modern sensibilities, with postmodern aesthetics. Um, And one of those is that they kind of tend to intrude upon what we consider private space. Private space. It makes me think of uh, that Seinfeld episode where uh, the, Chinese, the Chinese restaurant, you guys remember that one? And they're sitting there bored, waiting for a table, and Jerry um, gets uh, Elaine. She, he dares her to go and eat off of somebody's plate. And he offers her 50 bucks if you'll go up and, uh, and take a bite off of those people's plate. So the tension builds as she moves up closely to that space with these like intruding private feet and, and, and proceeds to take a bite off of their... T- Uh, their plate. I wasn't watching Seinfeld back in the 90s, so I wasn't prepared when a friend dared me the same dare at a Chili's. And, uh, well, it it got a little awkward because I took him up on it and took a bite of somebody's cheesecake. But fortunately, I kind of read the room and they just burst out laughing. The whole room sort of froze awkwardly, like, what is this guy doing? And then just burst out laughing. They'd seen the Seinfeld, I guess, you know. I didn't get 50 bucks either. I didn't know that that was possible. But I want to propose to you today that missionary feet are beautiful feet and that our our feet as missionaries in the church are beautiful partially because we do step out and confront the place where the private meets God's public space. That God's space, God's story is a big public story. That God has a frame that is much bigger than the frame that we are tempted to privatize our faith into. We often, I think, today, everybody has, not just in the church, but out of the church, these like spiritualities, you know? Everybody, when's the last time you met somebody who's like, I'm not spiritual at all? Everybody's spiritual. Everybody has some sort of faith or spirituality that's kind of confined in a, in a very convenient private sphere. But this isn't what God puts his church into. He has a big public story. We often read the Bible one missions writer um, suggests like we read, a, uh, like we read our uh, yearbook from our high school, flipping straight to a page with our picture in it where we recognize ourselves, sort of disregarding the rest. So my first point about beautiful missionary feet are feet framed within God's big, big story, big public story. I would just like, like subframe that or subtitle that the whole Bible. That's why these are beautiful feet. And this is why I might get in a little bit of time trouble here, because I'm going to try to do the whole Bible, okay? (laughs) Um, Actually, I think there's, are there slides for me? Okay, this is pretty small, but I'm literally going to take you through the whole Bible. Okay, so Genesis, in Genesis 12, 
where, where God first starts his mission among, incarnated among the people of Israel by calling Abraham. The very thing that he promises Abraham is not that he will simply have a localized private blessing or even contained within an ethnic uh, Jewish context, but that it would be a blessing for all peoples, for the nations. Through you, many people will be blessed. And that promise is repeated in Genesis 18. And we're going to go fast here so I don't actually go through the whole Bible. Go ahead and keep flipping through slides. I basically just want you to see with a glimpse that there are many, many passages, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, like our Psalm 96 today, that are about the nations and all peoples are encapsulated within this big story that God is telling. So we see that in Psalms, that full of of, uh, the Israelites' worship, was this idea that this was not just confined to them, but was pushing out into the public space. Today, our, our psalm was even talking about the trees themselves, the forest, the land, the earth. All, this is all framed. This is a, a big, big frame that we live in. Um, so just keep going here. We'll keep going through the Old Testament, passage after passage, into the, into the prophets. Stop for just a second. Jonah's not on here, but I think of Jonah as just like an example. You know, some people have like a problem with Jonah, like how could this guy get spit out of a fish? And my problem isn't that, that a man got swallowed and spit out by a fish. My thing is, how did a story about saving the Assyrians come out of Israel? You know, how did a story shaming a prophet of Israel because he was not willing to go and preach good news and, and call the Assyrian people in Nineveh to repentance? How, is, how, did, that, how did that happen? That's a miracle. That's a miracle that makes me just like kind of ambivalent about the fish part of the story, okay? Let's keep going. So then we go through the minor prophets into the gospels and we see that Jesus is full also of this theme of the nations being reached till we get to Matthew 28 where we could stop for just a second. After the resurrection of Jesus, we see him say, all authority is given to me. So apostles go into the nations. So I just want to say that there's good news to be found here and explored here for you. If your faith is sort of like, I've kind of got an Anglican version of little personal spirituality, I just call you to like find yourself as a small part of a bigger picture that encompasses all of everything that you can lay your eyes on, okay? And if we keep going through these slides, we get all the way through the epistles into Revelation where we see this ending, not with the ending of ethnic groups and languages, but with them circling around God, being redeemed and incorporated into God's big story. So when we go from, into, from like a trinketized, if that's a word, I kind of thought of that word, trinketized faith in like a small keychain-sized thing that I can pull out and rub and see the Bible as this little thing inside of the picture of my story, and that gets flipped to where I am living in this massive God story the thing that also help, that starts to push against like the actual private and public spaces around me. So we see that the apostles in Acts, that they are in the public space proclaiming Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and that his work on the cross and his resurrection is good news to all peoples. So this is my second point, that, that beautiful feet lead to new kingdom communities. Because what we see as a product of Jesus' command in Matthew 28 is the planting of churches in all of the cities that these missionaries could get their feet to. 
everywhere. If you follow Paul through Acts, he's making new kingdom communities. I think Paul today would use some of our current buzzwords if he could. He'd say, I am like making institutional change and systemic change through the institution of new systems. Not primarily, not primarily, and now he does, I think this is a ramification, but not primarily through a confrontation with the public systems, but through a creating of new systems in the institution of the church. A place where economics are radically re-envisioned. If you look in Acts, there was a radical sell-off of, of real estate and other properties and a radical redistribution to the poor. There were new systems of justice to the point where in Corinthians, you actually see the apostle saying, look, uh, what are you doing going to the law systems outside to solve these problems? Let's solve these with the elders of the church. Um, things that maybe we wouldn't really be comfortable with, you know, we're probably, the parish council is probably not ready for some of that here, right? <laughs> we see radical racial reconciliation in the church. Radical racial reconciliation. Ephesians 2, the dividing wall is broken down. We see Jew and Gentiles now worshiping together. We see class distinctions starting to be reversed. James chapter 2, the poor take the seat of honor, you know. Take a low seat, the teachings of Jesus. This is all embedded in Matthew 28 when Jesus says, go to all nations and make multiple disciples among them, teaching them to do all the radical stuff that I taught. So nowhere in there does it say, go plant a church. In fact, I've heard somebody say that. The mission that I'm a part of uh, talks about church planting. It's like, where does it say to plant a church? And I'm like, Matthew 28. Communities of radical Christ followers in and among all people groups. These are beautiful feet because they lead to new radical kingdom communities, new systems, the new institution. Beautiful feet, our missionary feet are beautiful feet for a third reason, because they are love-ed feet. Love, Ed, feet. Kind of pulling off an old 90s movie there, if anybody knows where I'm going with that, but I can't even say the name of it because it would be a mess to uh, distract you with that. But uh, there's a, a, Mike Myers is in it, and he's calling for this girl to return to him, and he questions in this poem, are you unloving? And so I'm saying, are you love, Ed? Are you loving? Are you love, Ed? These feet are beautiful feet because they're love-ed. So I wanted us to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, or in your minds to Luke chapter 15 to a very familiar story. In Luke 15, we have three uh, stories that Jesus tells to answer why he is on radical mission. Why is he disruptively entering into kind of the edges of society and um, working with sinners, outcast people, the poor, people who are neglected uh, by the religious powerful elites. And he tells a story about a coin that's lost. He tells a story about how, like, man, you don't think about the $9 you still have when you lose $1. You're digging for the $1. And he's pointing out that, like, the nature of the lostness is driving, driving the person. He also tells a story about the prodigal son, which you're probably really familiar with. And I also want to just bring up this very simple story of, in Luke 15, of the 99 sheep and the one. And I want to turn our attention to 
how we can see this loving and love-ed thing at play in the, in the potential kind of like outworkings of that story. Um, so we were workers in, in, a, in a remote part of the world for a long time among a very resistant people group. And, uh, you know, one of the things I say about missions is it's like the most fulfilling thing you can, it's the most significant thing you can do in the world, and yet it's the worst place to look for significance in the world. You know, because it's just, especially if you're going to what we would call in missions unreached people groups, that's typically the case for a reason. You know, they have the internet, they could have found it if they wanted it. You know, and so there's this sort of like, you know, just incredible hard and unrewarding side to doing something with people that are often very unresponsive. Um, so in Luke 15, we have a story with 100 sheep. 99 are, are fine, one is gone. And I don't know how you read that. One of the things, um, I studied New Testament many years ago at Dallas Seminary, and one of the best things I got, especially about reading the Gospels, I'll share with you here for free, is, is how to read, you should, when you're reading a Gospel or story, take the perspective of the different parties in the story. And then like stand in that perspective and read the story again. Read this from the perspective of the Pharisee. And yeah, of course I'd be angry, you know, or read it about, you know, read it from the perspective of the crowd who's a little bit perplexed. So I want us to read the story here from the perspective of the 99 sheep and the one sheep. So I want to ask you guys, who here, like, and you don't, you don't have to answer, but which one do you identify with? Um, I was raised in the church. My older sister was the one sheep, you know, for sure. When we got into a lot of trouble, I was the good kid. I just naturally read this story from the perspective of the 99. Anybody here kind of just naturally read from the 99 perspective? Anybody here read it a little bit more from the perspective of the one? Like, that's me. I'm the one. Okay. Well, I know from the point of the 99, I always read this story a little bit like, hey, what's going on? So I'm seeing the shepherd leaving. <laughs> you know, what are some of the feelings you might feel in a context like that? Abandonment. He's gone. What did I, I, I did this right. Why is he leaving me? Um, until, yeah, so, so that, that feeling that you can have of like, oh, okay, I'm one of the 99, and I have left. And I, I remember just kind of sitting with that, never really making it explicit, but it was just sort of a reaction that I would have to this text. Until one day on the field in one of those hard contexts where I was really down about our work, I asked this question. How would I feel if in the story, the shepherd leaves to go look for the one, and after two minutes, here comes his feet, He's got a thorn. He's like, man, forget that. You know, forget that. You know, or, you know, it's hot out. It's really humid. Maybe tomorrow will be better sheep hunting weather, you know. Now, how do I feel at that point as one of the 99? How do you feel if you're one of the, sitting in the perspective of the 99? You feel like, oh, great, the shepherd's back. I'm loved. I'm loved, the shepherd's back. Is that how you feel? How do you feel? I'm looking for an actual answer here. How do you feel? Insecure. You feel what? Insecure. Insecure. What else? Anybody else? Disappointed. I think I feel cheapened, you know, because the value of that one reflects back on the value of each of the 99. There's an equation there that's being, that's being worked out what would the shepherd do to get any one of us? What if I get lost? 
Is it, am I worth two minutes, five minutes, one thorn, a stub toe, 100 degrees with humidity? What, what is the equation here? And in Christian mission, we have this amazing, beautiful feat opportunity to participate in the mission of God, where now all of a sudden, we step into the shepherd's role. We move out and look at communities around us and around the world, and we say, what is that worth? What is it worth to reach out to East Austin? What is it worth to find some sheep among the Afghans that are coming to this town? What is that neighbor that works a couple of cubicles down, or I guess there's no cubicles anymore, but like on the Zoom call? Like, what is that person worth? And even in the almost feeling futile work of reaching out, of proclaiming Christ, of finding where that public and private space meet up against each other, you're working out, ironically, the love that you yourself are receiving. You're not creating it. You're exploring the boundaries of it. You're finding that just as that sheep is priceless, that too is the value that the shepherd has for you that took Jesus Christ himself to the cross. And so I guess I'm calling Church of the Cross here uh, on Mission Sunday here to see missionary feet as beautiful feet and to look down at your own feet and see like the only thing between those feet being missionary feet and not being is you too stepping out of the private frame into this bigger public frame where now I see not only myself in this bigger story, but that person next to me, whether they're living in their own little bitty frame or not, the, the reality is that God's frame encompasses them. Um, I got to visit Scotland uh, for just a few days, many years ago, and one of the things that struck me is that there was a little bit of a different public-private space um, thing at play with the land there. It's obviously beautiful land, beautiful, lush, green fields and rolling hills. Um, but that all, even though there were fences and a lot of, you know, farming and, and shepherding and cows, um, it was part of the, the land, uh, the law of the land in Scotland that anybody can go onto anybody's land. You can open the gate, you can go in, just close it behind you, you know, be polite, you know. And I think that in a place like Austin, Texas, we have to ask questions about how privatized we are both in our own faith but also how we interact with those that are living, trying to live in their own little private spheres. That there is a blurring of private and public when we say things like, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Pray with me. Lord, we love you. You are awesome. And Lord, I just... Uh, as we prepare to go through the uh, right of the table and we look forward to praying the Lord's Prayer, Lord, when we say, hallowed be your name, Lord, let us, what we, what we mean is, Lord, explode the sides of our, size of our frames. Blow the fences and the gates down to some degree, Lord. Yes, we need wisdom in how to interact with people in a complex, privatized world. But Lord, give us boldness. Help us, give us endurance to test out the love-edness of ourselves as we test out our uh, loving ability in the Spirit as we move towards others. Lord, we pray this all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.